0: not your damn job. The last dear writer of the year, and it's a doozy. Note, this week is the last dear writer set of the year. I'll be back on Saturday for the paid letter, and then I'm taking a week off for the holidays. Sort of. I have a book coming out, loads to do. And I'll return to the regular grind on January 5. See you then. The inspiration. You get what you pay for. Stories are a communal currency of humanity. Tahir Shah, Arabian Nights, a caravan of Moroccan dreams. I'm working on a story right now in which the basic premise of the world building is that meaning is the currency of the universe, which I personally believe to be true. Stories, of course, are delivery mechanisms for meaning. So when I saw this quote, I felt an instant affinity to it. I haven't read the book yet, but I'm planning on it. The Fat Orange Cat. Money, 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 money. In your writing, work in an odd form of currency. Use anything other than dollars and coins. It can be something of sentimental value to your main character or something an entire fantasy world uses to represent value. Or maybe you're writing about how it all works in a world with no currency. Just barter. Whatever. Pick a thing, assign it value it doesn't inherently have, and play with it a bit. Have fun. The Trope. MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is probably one of my favorite tropes. It's the single ingredient to which you just add water and boom, you've got conflict. Narrative conflict is what happens when your protagonist wants something, and your antagonist wants a mutually exclusive thing, and only one can win. They're locked in this epic zero-sum battle, and the escalations in that battle define the story structure. Sometimes, however, it's hard to figure out what one wants that's mutually exclusive with what the other one wants, and you can spend quite some time trying to work it out so that you've got a true zero sum. Or you can just add a MacGuffin. One thing, they both want it, only one can have it, instant narrative conflict. Think the Ark of the Covenant in Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Infinity Stone in Guardians of the Galaxy. Hell, in a love triangle, the person in the middle is the MacGuffin, providing everyone involved is monogamous and possessive and no one is open to new and exciting ways to love and be loved. Hey, no judgment. I'm a monogamist. I'm just saying. The point is, a MacGuffin is an easy way to get that conflict in so you can get to your storytelling, and there's no shame in using it. It works. The question. Good enough. Am I good enough to be a writer? You. You. Dear you, I'm taking my inspiration for this week's question from an article by author, editor, and writing coach Mathena Calliope, which she she wrote as a guest blog for Jane Friedman, a writer whose knowledge of the business is pretty damn great. I recommend. Anyway, the guest blog Calliope wrote was about the one question writers ask that she can never answer, and that question is, am I good enough? Calliope says it's an unanswerable question and elaborates on her point. Good enough implies there's a benchmark of writerly skill. Learn these techniques, practice this structural approach, master those literary devices. As if there were a bar out there somewhere, and your inherent talent plus practice puts you either above it or below it. Don't I wish. It's funny, because while I agree with Calliope's reasoning, and she says a lot of smart things in the blog, I recommend the read. I think this is the easiest question in the world to answer. Yes. The answer is yes. Am I good enough to keep writing? Yes. Am I good enough to show it to people? Yes. Am I good enough to, I don't care how you were going to end that sentence. I'm going to interrupt you now with an emphatic, yes. If good enough is the question, my answer is yes. Follow it up with a request that you stop immediately, right now, this minute, ever spending another moment of your life wondering if you're good enough because A, yes, you are, and B, oh my God, it doesn't matter. It's not your damn job to be good. It's your job to write. And here's the real shit-kicking truth. You will never, ever, ever, no matter how much you work or how hard you try, be good enough for some people. Some people are always going to hate what you do and think you're terrible at doing it, no matter what. And you know what? You're not writing for them. You're writing for the ones who love you. The rest can go eat hay. So stop asking that question and write. Right for you, right for the ones who love what you do, and let go of good enough because it just doesn't mean anything. Trust me on that. If you trust me on anything, please trust me on that. The practical that which doesn't kill us. I'm not sure why I spent the first full weekend in a very long time that I had completely off sinking deep into a warm tub of sociopaths, but that's exactly what I did. First was the podcast Dirty John, a story about a sociopath that got a hold of a divorced mom with two daughters. Oy. I followed that up by watching The Shrink Next Door, Apple TV's take on a podcast I'd listened to the last time I dipped my toe in Sociopath Lake last summer. The Shrink Next Door was a lot easier for me to take, and I really enjoyed Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd in their roles, but honestly, Catherine Hahn once again stole an entire show from me. I really want a show that's nothing but Phyllis. Please and thank you. But anyway... Back to Sociopathy Beach. I've been told by a lot of people never to listen to Dirty John because it shares a fair bit of DNA with my own story. On the one hand, those people were absolutely right. It was a little close to home, Sands the level of violence, and I thank them for keeping me away from it for this long. But on the other hand, I absolutely needed to listen to it. Because one of the most magical things stories do is heal, and we access that healing by engaging with the stories that mirror our own. When our own stories have horror in them, that's a really difficult thing to do. And it must be done carefully and with a qualified therapist on speed dial. That's part of the reason why therapy works, isn't it? Because you tell your story over and over. And as you tell it, you work with the narrative, what it means. And eventually, all your trauma becomes just that, a story. This is why stories are goddamn magic. Dirty John and The Shrink Next Door are based on true events, but they are also stories, the recounting of a series of events. Whether the story is total fiction or based on things that really happened is irrelevant to their power. The power is in the telling of the story and in the receiving of the story. In that recounting of the series of events, we decide what matters and what doesn't, what we need to pay attention to, and what we can skim over. That editorial process hones a series of events down into something that means something. And that meaning, the narrative, once we get there, heals us. So that is why I think on this rare two days off in a row, I dove headfirst into the deep end of the pool of paths. It's why we tell stories, fictional and otherwise. It's why stories are so goddamn powerful. And it's why we keep coming back to them as writers and readers over and over again. They give us meaning. And that meaning heals us. Pretty cool, huh? Do not buy me the jade egg. That link is not a hint. It's just so you know I'm not making this shit up. December 25th, 2021. Note. Usually the Saturday essay is for the paid tier only, but as it's the last post of the year, I'm celebrating by sending this one out to everyone. I hope you all have a lovely whatever. Holidays if you celebrate, break from work if you get one, Saturday if that's all it is to you. I hope that you, wherever you are, have some joy today. Thank you for giving me my writing back this year. You can't know what it means. Although maybe you do. I'll see y'all back here on January 5th. Dear writer, it's a random thing, the end of the year, but it's another piece of evidence that meaning is created and assigned, not inherent. January 1st is just a day, not fundamentally different from September 17th or March 12th. Just a day. But every year it carries on its back this sense of apprehension and wonder. And it's going to be 2022. I mean, what the fuck with that, right? I remember when I was a kid singing to that Prince song and thinking that 1999 was so far away as to be incomprehensible. Now I look back at 1987 like it was never real. And honestly, it wasn't. Numbering the days, the months, the years, it's all made up. It doesn't mean anything, really, except what we decide it means. So it either means everything or nothing or something in between, depending on what we've decided it means. The new year could mean a new opportunity a fresh start, a new you. Do you need to be new? Probably not. But the idea of a new you is appealing sometimes, isn't it? After all, the old you, ugh am I right? So we go into the new year thinking this is it. This is the year. It's going to be better. I'm going to change, get smaller, get bigger, do more, do less. The specific parameters of the change doesn't matter. The change itself is what matters. The new year as an arbitrary marker isn't a terrible one. Sometimes we need markers, and rolling with the universal energy that comes when everyone is focused on one marker provides a little added momentum for whatever you want in your new year, so that's cool. One of the things I fail to do at the turn of the new year, which I usually meet with fearful wonder and just a hint of existential dread, is to think back on what happened in the previous year. I tend to treat the past like an old Kleenex. Once it's all dirty, I really don't want to think about it anymore. I remember once I was on a business trip with two friends, and one of them asked me and the other where we lived, in the past, the present, or the future. The third of us immediately said the past, and that made sense. Dude was a brooder. The asker said she lived in the present, which is probably the mentally and emotionally healthy response. But me? I was all about the future, baby. I love the unknown, the yet to have happened, the road may be chosen, but definitely not yet traveled. I tingle with excitement when I think about the marvels the unknown future holds, the surprises, the new experiences, the good news I hope will come. I am, as it turns out, in love with the unknown. Once it's known, however, I become all Jed Bartlett about everything. What's next? But now, on the eve of another next, I'm trying to get myself to think back over this past year and all that has happened. A year ago today, I was anticipating a simple Christmas with my eldest kid. Poor thing had been housebound with her mom since spring break due to COVID. And an upcoming visit from my boyfriend just after the holiday. He was driving from Colorado for two days to see me because it wasn't safe to fly, and he was planning on staying for two weeks. A year ago today, I was still just talking about finally finishing the House Story Works book, but just like the many years before when I was talking about it, I had no immediate plans to actually do it. A year ago today, I didn't know it would be my last Christmas with a kid in the house. I didn't know that my boyfriend would travel out for a two-week visit, stay an additional week because a housemate back in Colorado had a COVID scare, negative, all turned out fine, and then would look at me and say, you know, I could just stay. I didn't know that in the fall of this year, I would once again tell my best friend about the need to write the damn book and she would lose her patience with me and assign an arbitrary deadline of October 15. I didn't know that I would actually hit that deadline and that by December, I would have the damn book just about ready for sale as the world ticked over to 2022. I didn't know that this year I would start a newsletter that would get me writing regularly again. Not just podcasting, writing. I had no plans to do this. One day, I ran across Substack and I just said, okay, and started writing. And here we are. That's how I do almost everything. No planning, just, okay. See above, re, boyfriend, who is now my live-in life partner. A year ago today, we'd been friends for years, but we'd only been dating for six months and had only met in person one other time. You know, I could just say, okay. Okay. I didn't have any plans for 2021. I intended pretty much none of it. It all just happened. It was a momentous year for me, a year of tremendous change. And 2022, for which I have copiously planned, promises to be just as changeful. But for right now, for this moment, I'm going to step out of character and look back. This year was not easy, but in a lot of ways, it was pretty great. I'm wary of the gratitude thing. It's been co-opted by goop types, and I'm a bit snobby about getting goopy, probably because I'm a middle-aged, middle-class white lady, and goop feels like a trap I need to keep my eye on, lest I trip and fall in, and the next thing you know, I'm sliding a jade egg up my hoo-ha. That said, I do feel there's a real benefit to conscious gratitude, but conscious gratitude requires a deliberate look back, or at least a look deep into the present. And like I said, that's not where I live. But in this moment this deep, quiet puff of breath into the frigid December air, I'm going to take a moment to be grateful for what has happened and to try not to be overridden with anxiety over all my plans for the new year. For a moment, I'm going to try to balance on the now with an ear out for the echoes of joy from the past and an eye toward the future because I know myself and I will never not be looking ahead. In this moment, I am goopily grateful and that's okay because it's just you and me and you know that jade eggs are not part of my future right? Right. I mean, right? Right. See you in 2022. Everything else.